it's again an honor, isn't it, to come together for the purpose, the express purpose you and I have done it this evening. It's not a social gathering per se. It's not a gathering with any other purpose than, of course, to direct the heartfelt worship of you and me to the very one who not only is the creator, but is the one who is so deserving of our adoration. In fact, it is interesting that as we turn our attention tonight to the grace of God, you'll notice on the screen, the wall to my left, we'll be giving some appreciation to the next segment in our series of lessons we've been involved in for several Sunday evenings at this point. In fact, to call back to your attention those features, I would ask you to note, we began a series of lessons a number of Sunday evenings ago now with the goal of aiding ourselves to know God better. As a part of that series, we have studied about the Godhead. We've studied about the features of the gospel and the characteristic attached to the name of God itself. We, in fact, appreciated that He is omniscient, he is omnipotent and He's omnipresent. We appreciated the fact, furthermore, He's a God of judgment who very seriously takes the role of judge. More recently, we've cast a spotlight on both His love and His mercy. That brings us almost expectedly to the lesson of the evening today, the grace of God. I hope that we each, perhaps for the next few moments, can revisit anew the teaching of the Scriptures on this subject. It is the case that we are surrounded by a large segment of the culture that has a different viewpoint on the grace of God than what I believe we're going to fairly appreciate as a result of our study tonight. And I hope that as you and I wrestle with or come to grips with the teaching of the Scriptures on this, that we'll even be more cemented in the steadfastness of our knowledge of the grace of God. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, we're going to turn our attention to grace a moment ago, Cale read for us from Titus, the second chapter, verses 11 and 12. We won't look at that verse first in the lesson tonight, but it will come in due course and will cast a pretty strong reflection on the statements found on that occasion. So if you'd like to mark that place and come back to it later when we get there, that certainly will, will be in order. As we consider the grace of God, it goes without saying that the Bible has very much to say emphasizing just how gracious God is, how abundant His grace is, how far-reaching His grace is, and the marvelous blessing on the human family that results from His grace. We can start even in Psalm 116, verse 5, in which on that occasion in the long ago, David the psalmist, with a marvelous excitement, said, Our Lord is gracious. Gracious is our Lord. Nehemiah 9, verse number 17, somewhat later in Old Testament history, although it's a book that comes before Psalms in the Old Testament, we remember Nehemiah, in fact, thought so powerfully about the nature of the sins of his people and that which had so much been their choice and their allotment. And yet in that particular place, he lifted high the banner of God and said, God, you're a God who is willing to forgive because you are slow to anger and of great graciousness. Even Nehemiah recognized well that God's grace was an amazing thing. And that graciousness maybe leads us directly to several verses highlighting the abundance of it. It's not just a minimal amount or a minor amount, but rather an abundant amount. Paul put it in language like this in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. 
in the midst of that New Testament epistle, he directly challenged the church in Corinth and said that the grace of God is able to make you abound in all things. That's a far-reaching grace, isn't it? So extensive, so powerful, that they were able as a result of it to abound in every meaningful way. I would ask you to notice even beyond that, 1 Peter 5.10, another New Testament writer directly said that he is, that is the Father, is the God of all grace. Those kinds of passages could be multiplied many times over because the Scriptures have so much to say about the grace of God. But as you and I began to wrestle with, so what is a reasonable definition of this grace? I'm sure, like myself, a definition you probably have heard since you were but a youth. It describes God's grace as His unmerited favor. His goodness extended, though it wasn't deserved. That's interesting, and certainly there's much to be said about the good points of that definition. I would ask you to notice an operational one that, again, it seems to me, does do a pretty good job at not only working with that previous one, but highlighting the care that the Bible will have to say about it. God's grace. The specific fact of Him giving to us what we do not deserve. I would ask at this point, you might notice, last Sunday evening when we described God's mercy... There operationally we identify that is He does not give me what I do deserve. That's His mercy. He does give me, though, what I do not deserve. That's His grace. Each of those definitions, indeed, much, I suppose, to be said about them. I would ask you to notice a few verses, though, that do, that do seem to call that very attribute to our mind. Remember, God's grace, He gives to me what I do not deserve. As early as Joel 2 verse 13, we have that minor prophet who on that occasion challenged the people of Israel. And he highlighted to them the fact that they, by virtue of their sin and by virtue of the iniquity of their heart and life, didn't deserve forgiveness, but God extended it to them. He gave them what they did not deserve. Amazing, isn't it? The opportunity to be forgiven and to have their sins moved away from them. That same kind of thought reappears in Amos 5.15 as well as Jonah. In those particular books, we remember again, circumstances were described in which God's people were in a very great state of disobedience. One could appreciate they didn't deserve an opportunity for forgiveness, but God extended it. As you and I think about our life today, isn't it still the case that much along that line might be commented? We'll build on that thought later in the lesson, but let's close this slide by noting when we think about what God offers that I nor you deserve, at the top of that list must be eternal life. You and I are sinners. As such, we are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Ephesians 2.12 tells us. We're without God and without hope in the world in that condition. And yet God extended to us by commendation His love even while we were sinners, Romans 5, 8 tells us. He gave me the opportunity for eternal life, to be with Him in heaven, to enjoy all the goodness and all the marvels that attach to that place. And I'm a lowly sinner. Not only that, you'll notice in 1 John 2, verse 25, we read, And this is the promise which He hath promised us, even eternal life. 
the very zenith, of course, of what brought that about. The opportunity that you and I have for that eternal life is, of course, Jesus Christ. Look at how the word grace is attached to these things. The law came through the law of Moses, but it says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John 1.17. When you and I then think about that attitude and that aptitude by which God gives us what we do not deserve, it's through the agency of Jesus Christ. Not only that, in Romans 5, 17, Paul explicitly puts it like this. For by one man all were dead. Now, in that particular context, Paul was referring to the sin of Adam. When Adam chose to sin, he and he even brought sin into the human family. All have been beneath the sentence of physical death ever since. But he just as surely has said that by the sin of one, death came through the grace of one, namely Jesus Christ, life comes. Now those were the Holy Spirit's words through Paul in Romans 5.17. When you and I then give consideration to that attribute of God's grace, look at how the pinpoint leads us to His death and to His blood. That grace highlighted in Romans 3, verses 22 to 24. You and I are justified by His blood. That blood made available by the grace of God. Ephesians 1, verse 7 highlights this thought. You and I are forgiven. How? Through the blood of Christ, according to the riches of His grace. God's grace, as it is practically appreciated through the nature of Christ's sacrifice leads us to notice that so far this attribute of His grace is so magnificent. That grace, of course, culminated in the very offering of Jesus at Calvary. One final thought would be Hebrews 2.9. We realize there, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And then it says that by the grace of God... He tasted death for every man. God's grace manifested in the fact that on that cross He took my place and yours. He died for you and me. And the Bible says that's then the result of His grace. That is the manifestation of it. So far, all these features of the grace of God have been many passages reminding us of how often the Bible speaks of it. But there is yet so much more to be noted I come to this slide by asking you, perhaps if your experience is very much like Denise and mine and my, and my families, when you speak with someone, it's not at all uncommon, it seems, for the world, even religious individuals, to have a conception of God's grace somewhat like this. It is a general offering whereby God will bestow upon every member of the human family a strong means of goodness in which He'll just overlook their errors, overlook their sins, and welcome them right on into heaven. There is nothing further from the biblical teaching of God's grace than that. Although it is so commonly considered, it would seem at least. But as you and I give thought to, again, that's what many in the world seem to think. We've already learned tonight that God's grace, as it is referenced and as it is discussed, leads us to notice the Bible is very specific in affirming that it is entirely possible, Jude verse 4 tells us, for human beings to pervert or distort the grace of God. 
Now, might I, might I say, if it merely was the case that God was just going to unconditionally save and welcome everybody into heaven, then what sense does Jude verse 4 make? How can men pervert it or distort it or twist it? Well, you and I notice, and we shall see it clearly in just a moment. Given the Bible's teaching of His grace, it's easy to understand how men might distort it. Let us look at a few quick appreciations about His grace before we launch into the next part of the lesson. It certainly must be admitted that God's grace is identified immediately as a gift. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The word it is a pronoun, and you and I should appreciate what is the antecedent, what is the thing to which that word it refers. Well, notice it's God's grace. It is given as a gift. He is not talking about faith at that point. Faith is not a gift. God's grace is a gift. When you and I appreciate that fact, notice where it leads us. It helps us easily understand texts like 1 Corinthians 15.10 where Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. One more time, they are reminded the church in Corinth about the importance and necessity of that sweetness of God's grace. Not only, though, should we appreciate it as a gift, as the Bible certainly teaches it to us, but we quickly notice that that grace, and now we notice a strong element, it must be received. Just because God offers it does not mean that all will receive it. No wonder Paul admonished in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, the brethren in Corinth, he ordered them, receive the grace of God. It is not something automatically and unconditionally to be received. It, of course, is easy to understand. Again, once we finish our lesson tonight, the ways in which we are admonished to receive it. Oh, indeed, God offers, but you and I have a part to play in this. We must receive it. The obvious question, how is it done? Notice, it is by faith. If you'd like to read a verse that has so much to say about this, notice Romans 5, verse number 2 with me. Beginning in that fifth chapter of the Roman letter, Paul identifies so marvelously about the blessing through Jesus. He begins by saying, Let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, immediately he's made reference to Christ, and he's referred to the peace that one is able to enjoy and possess. And then in verse 2 he says, speaking of Christ, it's through Him we have access by faith into grace. Now, what is that? You mean it's by faith and that alone that I have access into His grace? That's what Paul said. In other words, one doesn't just automatically be the recipient of all the blessings of His grace. One has to enter it. It's like a doorway. One has to enter in through that doorway, through the avenue of faith, and only then is one then in the confines of His grace. To think about grace that way, again, begins to differentiate it strongly from many common prevalent views of the world, doesn't it? As you and I come to the close of that slide, isn't it rather interesting then some additional questions that probably come to your mind and mine? So if it is through faith we enter His grace, the questions perhaps lead us to this. In our study about grace so far this evening, 
we have now began to appreciate that faith and grace are both vitally important to our salvation. Sometimes I like to think of it as, as a single equation. Call it a math equation if you like, but it's an equation. And in that equation, we appreciate the following. God's grace is a vital part of it. And as I explain it here, that is God's part of that equation. But as you and I have learned, that matter of salvation, again, is something that there's access into His grace, and that is your faith and mine. That's the other part of that same equation. To somewhat summarize that point, we realize that God's grace or grace is God's part relating to your salvation and mine, and faith is my part, your part relating to our salvation. And both sides of that coin are absolutely required, aren't they? We couldn't be saved apart from God's offer, that is to say His grace, nor could we say, be saved without the access into it that comes as a result of our faith. This grace, as well as faith, leads us then to what appear to me to be four passages that again pose somewhat of an issue or problem to some in the world as they try to view grace the way I described it earlier. This unconditional, universal matter in which God offers salvation to everybody regardless what they may or may not do. Look at these verses. In Galatians 2.21, Have you ever thought of the fact that God's grace can be frustrated? I do not frustrate the grace of God. That's what Paul said. Now that sentence would make no sense unless it were possible to frustrate God's grace. But I thought God was all-powerful. I thought He was in fact thoroughly able to bring about His will in every regard. So how can His grace be frustrated? That is to say, to bring it to naught. Hold that thought in mind just a moment. What about Hebrews 12 verse 15? On that occasion we read this rather challenging passage. God's grace can fail. How can God's grace fail? Again, I thought He was all-powerful and always able to bring about that which is His will. And if it's His will that all men be saved, then why won't everybody be saved? Somehow His grace can fail. Hold that thought in mind just a moment. In Jude verse number 4, we noted this verse earlier. But one more time, there were those in Jude's day who were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. They were taking that which was the pure and truthful grace of God, twisting it and turning it into lewdness and licentiousness and lasciviousness. Now, how can God's grace be distorted that way? Those are all great questions, aren't they? Thankfully, we're about to see what the inspired answer to all of them is. As you hold every one of them in mind, how is it that God's grace can be described by words like fail, perverted, distorted, or frustrated? I believe we can well tell, and I've tried to underline it at the bottom of that slide. In light of verbs like those, the common worldly perception of God's grace cannot be right. It cannot be biblically correct. With these thoughts in mind, why don't we then allow the Scriptures to identify for us, then what is God's grace? We started the lesson tonight with unmerited favor, that circumstance in which God gives to us what we do not deserve. Let us be more specific now. 
Those are fine operational definitions, but why don't we come to the following? There are two particular passages that I would wish you to consider with me, basically for the remainder of the lesson tonight. Please turn to Genesis chapter 6. We have in this particular chapter a monumental presentation of the grace of God. I say monumental because it is so easy to appreciate, and yet it teaches so much about the correctness of the biblical view of, of the grace of God. The scene is a familiar one, isn't it? The world, of course, was overwhelmed with sin and iniquity. The people of Noah's day, it says in verse 5 of this chapter, the thoughts of the hearts of men was only evil continually. We also remember that God made determination to bring a flood of waters upon the earth and bring to naught or destroy that human creation that He had fashioned. To destroy with one exception. There was a gentleman. There was a man. Please notice with me the language of verse number 8. Genesis 6, verse number 8. It says, But Noah found something in the eyes of the Lord. Now as you and I look carefully at the wording, we notice what was it that Noah found? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here is again a powerful passage that speaks volumes about what grace is. So here was the scene by which God had recognized the errors of the human family. His determination was such that again destruction or at least a removal, a separation was going to take place. You and I know well what happened in the verses that follow. Did God automatically just save Noah despite anything and everything he might or might not have done? Did he choose, in fact, to some miraculously, miraculous measure by which Noah was saved despite any effort on his part? We all know the answer to that is absolutely no. In fact, did you notice carefully beginning in verse number 14, on the same occasion that God gave these instructions and made this observation about Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, God now gives a set of identifications. He says, make thee an ark of gopher wood. And the rest of those features and facts you and I remember so well. It was to have three stories, one door and one window. It was to be pitched within and without. God gave this man instructions and Noah had then the labor that attached to doing what God said to do. But I thought he received God's grace. Sure he did. But that grace meant again that it was by the faith of Noah he had access into the nature of the blessings that God afforded him. Notice again that faith is a clear part of that which you and I see in this sixth chapter of Genesis did you notice verse 22 of the same chapter? Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And later in Hebrews 11 verse number 7, as the inspired writer gives us thoughts about the honor roll of faith, it says, By faith Noah, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world in righteousness. But notice it was by faith Noah did that. Grace and faith still completely working beautifully together even in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. I would ask you to notice with interesting character what you and I have seen then on that occasion. We saw that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What did that mean? What did that mean? 
I've tried to identify it like this. The fact that Noah found grace meant that Noah received a system of instruction by which he could be saved. And if he dutifully attended to those instructions, then he would be the recipient of the blessings attached to that which was the grace of God. But if he was not dutiful and faithful, if he did not obey, then he still wouldn't receive the blessings attached to it because that grace is a system of instructions. Noah, you build an ark. It was a gargantuan task, but yet Noah did it. For some amount of time, Noah built, constructed, worked feverishly, and all the while he was a preacher of righteousness, Second Peter 2 verse 5 tells us. Might we at least pause at this point to notice? We have come to a passage in which we find the grace of God described you might appreciate this is the very first occurrence in all of the Bible of the word grace. Hasn't it spoken so clearly as to what grace is? It is so far different from the common perception of the age. Grace is a system of instruction by which God makes blessings known, but those blessings are contingent upon the faithfulness of the person to the instructions given. That's God's grace. That particular text, that particular example has whetted our appetite for another one. It is the one that again was read earlier in our hearing tonight. Turn back to that passage in Titus for just a moment. In Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, we find Paul making this statement to Titus, his young son in the faith. And of course, Titus, as a preacher of the gospel, Titus 2.15, he was also to share the truth and the thoroughness of a subject like this one. So Titus 2, beginning in verse number 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That takes us through the close of verse 14 of that same chapter. Let's revisit it starting in verse 11. For the grace of God. The word for is a word that links this to the previous presentations of the chapter. Now notice the sentence. Grace is the subject. Of God is a prepositional phrase identifying that we're talking about God's grace here. The grace of God. What about it? It said, it hath appeared. That word appears, you can see at the bottom. It literally means to be manifested. It means to shine forth. So God's grace has shined to all men. Everybody, everywhere has the opportunity to appreciate the thoroughness and the fullness of all the blessings that come with it. That's what the text tells us. But as you and I have learned already, that immediately helps us understand something. If God's grace then were automatically to mean salvation, then this means everybody's going to be saved, period. But we know that's not what it means. For the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And Jesus very clearly taught in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. God's grace has appeared to all men, but not all men will be saved. Clearly, there is an appreciation as it touches the grace of God here. And it will sound a lot like that scene in Genesis chapter 6, the one concerning Noah. No wonder then as you come to the bottom of that slide with me. Why don't we fill in the pieces? What is it about God's grace? We'll look at how the passage continues. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. We mustn't stop the sentence there though because the Holy Spirit didn't. What is this about God's grace teaching us? God's grace teaches one more time, God's grace is a system of instruction by which man through faith can respond to that in obedience and be the beneficiaries and recipients of the blessings that God has to offer through that grace. God nowhere makes promise that those spiritual blessings offered by virtue of His grace will be received by anybody who is not a person of faith and who is not obedient to Him. Grace is a system of instruction let us develop that like this. Verse number 12 again points out so beautifully, teaching us that denying ungodliness. So God's grace teaches me something. It teaches you and me that certain attributes of life must be forfeited. I've got to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Not only must I avoid those things, however, I must also be quick to put into place these things. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. God's grace is a system of instruction. This person who is an open drunkard and wishes to make no change and yet appeal to the grace of God thoroughly misunderstands God's grace. God's grace won't save him as a drunkard. If he repents and changes, though... He can then be the recipient of His grace offered as one who is obedient by faith to that which God has promised. God's grace is a system of instruction. It was in Noah's day. It remains so here in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that bringeth salvation appeared to all men. Now put these pieces back together with me. Now that we know that God's grace is of this form, isn't it easy to see how God's grace can be frustrated? What if a person won't obey the gospel? What if a person does not obey the gospel? Will that then frustrate God's plans for saving that person? Sure it will. Because all who will not obey will also not be saved. Titus, or rather, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. How can then we understand God's grace failing? Simple now, isn't it? We read in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves His human family. Every one of us are made in His image and in His likeness and God wants every one of us to be saved. And He extends His grace as available to all. But not all will respond in faith. Not all will respond in obedience. No wonder Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 6 verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, 
but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sins, ye became the servants of righteousness. You notice they obeyed. Obeyed what? The form of doctrine. They'd been taught something because God's grace teaches. One cannot separate God's grace from rightful instruction biblically. They go hand in hand together. They always did. We've learned then how the human family can misunderstand because God's grace can fail. God's grace can also, as you and I have learned it, be frustrated. What about that last one? In Jude verse number 4, again, we read that there are individuals in that day who were able to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They were using God's grace to teach what He never wished to be taught and what He never wished to be the case. Have you ever heard any lesson like that? Under the banner of what the world commonly perceives God's grace to be, that's easy, isn't it? This person who says, well, God will just look upon me with favor. He will forgive all of my sins and allow me to be welcomed into heaven despite my flaws and my failures. And so I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing. God will forgive me. Do you notice how that's nothing but turning the grace of God into lasciviousness? Notice again, God's grace teaches us we've got to deny some things ungodliness, worldly lusts, and we've got to live soberly, righteously, and godly. That's what God's grace teaches us. And unless we, of course, fulfill and follow and obey that system of instruction, God's grace will fail for me personally. I will not be saved. As the curtain closes on that particular slide, it's now easy to appreciate some additional passages that we'll use to close our lesson. In Acts 13, verse number 43, as Paul preached with such confidence and assurance, he ordered the folks of that day to maintain and to continue in God's grace. They had an obligation and they had work to do in order that they might continue in that grace. Notice that message is just as useful for you and me tonight as it was then. I need day by day to deny worldly lusts, and I need day by day to, in fact, pursue soberness and righteousness and godliness in my life so that I can be the continued recipient of all those blessings offered through His grace. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, what good news it's going to be when the, when the Lord returns. For those who are ready, for those who have been faithful, for those who are the blessed beneficiaries of His grace... What a sweet and victorious day that's going to be. And Peter even writes about that there in that passage. For when he returns, we in his grace, as the saved and faithful, shall be ushered and welcomed into the everlasting glories of heaven forevermore. That again is just the manifestation of the goodness of his grace. Tonight we've learned among these considerations the following quick points of summary. We've appreciated that God's grace, that unmerited favor by which He gives us what we do not deserve, but the information by which that comes is presented in a system of instruction. And you and I, in order to receive its blessings, must obey it in faith. Tonight, are you the recipient of God's grace? If you are not, there's perhaps two major categories. Maybe you never have been. 
you at this point in your life have never become a Christian, remember all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And it's only through baptism we enter into that relationship, and it's only in baptism in which we then have entered into that station by which we've entered through faith. Romans 5 verse 2. If we could help you tonight in your desire to obey that gospel, you need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, and confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If, however, you have become a Christian, but maybe you've lost sight of His grace, maybe you have accepted some of the world's teaching on that point, and you think that no matter what you do, maybe His grace will still reach you in some way, my friend, spiritually, His grace is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, verse number 1. God's grace is only in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, you can't receive His grace. If you need to return to the fold then of safety, may you do that tonight by requesting us to pray with you and for you. We'd be happy to do that. If we could help you tonight in any of these ways, won't you let that request be made known while together we stand and while we sing.